Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning as we worship God together. Uh, For those of you who may be visiting, I'm Curtis Rogers, and I'm an intern with Milo and Mission and Calvary Baptist Church. It's been a little while since the last time I preached, but I'm excited to be talking to you this morning about biblical church leadership. This is part of our summer sermon series, a biblically healthy post-COVID church. And one of the marks that you will find in all healthy churches is biblical church leadership. In fact, if I had to sum up my entire sermon into one sentence, I would say that biblical church leaders follow Christ's example of leadership. Biblical church leaders follow Christ's example of leadership. And this is the kind of leadership that is countercultural. It's leading by serving, servant leadership. It's not how the world tends to lead, and it goes against every aspect of our sinful human nature. It poses a direct threat to our egos and pride, and it demands of us humility and sacrifice. And so I have three points to break down what biblical church leadership is. Number one, if you take notes, biblical church leadership means leading differently than the world. Leading differently than the world. Number two, biblical church leadership means exercising authority how God intended. Exercising authority how God intended. And number three, biblical church leadership means every church member plays a role. Every church member plays a role. About 20-odd years ago, there was this fantastic World War II miniseries that came out called Band of Brothers, if you remember it. It follows the trials of Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division right after the D-Day landings on Normandy. And a large part of the show does a lot of contrasting between different styles of leadership. And early on, we see examples of poor leadership. Their first commanding officer was selfish and had no respect for his troops. He would arbitrarily punish them for no reason, train them harder than any other company, and half the time barely participate in the training himself. He liked to yell orders from a safe distance but never bother to get down in the trenches. And eventually, he's removed from his post and a new commanding officer steps in who is sacrificial, who leads from the front and and won't ask anything of anyone unless he's willing to do it himself as well. And one of the best scenes is when they're approaching this town of Carentan, as it's called, to retake it, but they get pinned down by machine gun fire, and everyone has taken cover in a ditch, and they're terrified to move, and their commanding officers yelling at them to keep moving because they're going to die if they stay there. But they won't listen. They're too afraid. And he goes around, he tries to pull them up, he kicks them, anything to get them moving, but nothing is working because they're terrified. Eventually, he decides to be an example himself. He gets up in the middle of the road, bullets raining down on either side of him, spurs on his troops, and makes his way towards the town himself, alone. And the soldiers, motivated by seeing their leader run out into the midst of danger, quickly gather themselves and follow after him. He not only gives commands 
to his men, but he is the first one to example what he's commanding by leading the way. In our passage for today, as Vina just read out, as commentators note, we see Jesus leading the way to Jerusalem. Mark 10, 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. We see Jesus giving his commands to his disciples, disciples who are afraid, disciples who are thinking of themselves first, disciples who squabble over which one of them will get all the glory. And to this group of people who fail to realize the bigger picture, Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He not only commands servant leadership, he gives the greatest example of it all by giving his life on the cross for us. And so beginning at point one, leading differently than the world. And my scriptural pervasive is this, is Mark 10, 35, as Vina just read out. If you just flip back there with me again for a second, and notice how Jesus contrasts the leadership of the world with how the disciples are meant to lead. And just reading again here from the CSB, Jesus says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples here are focused on what the world focuses on. And we see this theme throughout Mark, right? They rebuke the little children that come to Jesus earlier. They argue amongst themselves, one another, about which one of them is the greatest. In Luke, we see James and John ask if they can rain fire down from heaven to destroy people. Meanwhile, Jesus has already said multiple times in chapter 10 and chapter 9 that the first will be last and the last first. That if anyone will be first He must be a servant of all. The values that Jesus proposes are in direct contrast to the values of the world. And so what changed for these disciples, right? Because here in Mark, they're selfish, they're fixated on themselves, but later in Acts, we see them truly example this kind of servant, sacrificial leadership. What changed was that they look, they took their gaze off of themselves and directed it towards Christ. They stopped following the world's example of leadership and began to follow Christ's model. And I don't know about you, but how easy it is for me to take my gaze off of Jesus. As many of you know, as I did this morning as well, I play piano on the music team quite often, occasionally drums, and how easy it is to be up on stage and to take what is meant to glorify Christ and use it to glorify myself. It's easy to enjoy playing an instrument, but to forget that it is meant to give honor to God. There's no wonder that we're just like the disciples. 
Jesus is marching his way to Jerusalem, preparing himself to die for the sins of the world. And James and John, who, as one commentator suggests, doesn't truly understand that he has to die. They don't get it, but yet they have the gall to ask for positions of glory for themselves. When it is Christ who will be glorified, who will rise on the third day, defeating death, conquering sin, tearing the veil, giving us access to the Father, giving his life as a ransom for many. And yet, just like James and John, we avert our gaze from the majesty of God and become consumed with ourselves. I read a quote from H.B. Charles this week that said, a passion to preach without the discipline to prepare is just a desire to perform. And how, how easy it is to just get up and perform for you. May it not be so. And the irony of ironies, though, is that the very things that God commands his church to do, we, in order to worship him, preach the word, sing songs, and practice baptism, and communion, and church discipline, and evangelism, and missions, all things that are meant to give all the glory to God, we can, just like James and John, end up using even these to give glory to ourselves. And this is why Jesus has to gather his disciples around and say, hey guys, it's not to be like this among you. The world thinks that leadership means using your power to demand things from people or ruling with an iron fist while receiving all the praise for yourself. But he says, you are different. I'm calling you to something greater. Follow my example of leadership. Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. So what does, what does leading differently than the world look like? And I think J.C. Ryle puts it well when he says of Christians who live and lead in this way. He says, while they live, they are laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, and often persecuted. But their memorial is on high. Their names are written in heaven. A life spent in this way is truly Christ-like, and it brings its own reward. When we had our Engage conference back in April, and we had these shirts, these purple shirts uh, made up on the back that said, serve, die, be forgotten. And I think that's a great little catchphrase that reflects Christ's leadership. Serve, die, be forgotten. It reflects how I feel like we ought to be. A lot of people getting hung up on be forgotten, like why forgotten? Why don't we get any recognition at least? Why should we promote being forgotten? And I think it's because we'll be so enamored with Christ and his glory that we would forget about our own. Our prayer for Mile One Mission and Calvary Baptist Church is that God would use us to spark a revival and a turning away from sin and a turning towards Jesus that has not happened in this province in arguably a hundred years. And our prayer is that churches will be planted in every community in the city and communities across this province. And we pray that thousands of people would be saved from sin, that the very fabric of our culture would shift because that many people are encountering Christ. That's my prayer. That's our prayer for this church and its ministries. And if that happens, and 100 years from now, people are talking about the great Newfoundland and Labrador revival of the 21st century, 
May our names truly be forgotten because Christ was that much magnified amongst us. When I think of leading differently, I think of some of the guys at the office that I work with. You know, some of us are church planners, some training to be church planners, you know, the head guys one day at our own churches. I think of John Lewis, came all the way here from Mississippi, feels called to Labrador, already got a seminary education, next to go through church planner assessment. You know, and yet he's always the first guy to volunteer to do the most meager of tasks. Like from cleaning the toilets to vacuuming this very large sanctuary, which actually takes a lot of time. Whenever anyone needs a ride, he's always the first to offer. And when we're all sort of consumed about you know, gas prices and I want to be spending that much gas to drive across, he's always the first to offer a ride in that gas-guzzling minivan that he has. <laughs> Little things like that are examples of Christ-like leadership. Biblical church leadership means leading differently than the world. But we can only truly lead differently than the world when we ourselves have encountered the saving grace of Jesus Christ. May we ourselves become so captivated with the person of Jesus that the promises and the praises of this world would lose their sparkle. Biblical church leadership means, and this is point two, exercising authority how God intended. Exercising authority how God intended. One author says that nothing is more confusing than people who give good advice but set a bad example. And if we look to Mark 10, we see Jesus tell his disciples how to lead. But if you'll turn with me, quickly to John 13, verses 12 to 17. That's John 13, verses 12 to 17. There we'll see Jesus exampling what he has just taught. This is where he washes the disciples' feet. An incredibly humble thing to do because it was the task of a slave, not a rabbi. John 13, 12 to 17 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, as a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Here, as um, Steve Bray told me uh, earlier on this week, the two disciples that once wanted to call down fire from heaven, who asked for seats next to the throne of Jesus, get their feet washed by their Savior. I mean, I wonder if at this point, at least maybe something is starting to click. I don't know. That exercising authority as God intended means not being praised by others, but fulfilling the role of a servant. In fact, Peter, at first, Peter is so confused by this act of humility that he says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. 
but listen to the transforming power of Jesus, which without, we are not able to follow his example. Peter, who at first rejects Jesus' act of service, would later be a Christ-like leader in the early church and faithfully preach the gospel. The same Peter who would deny him would later faithfully preach the gospel to his death as he would be crucified as his Savior was. James would die by the sword in Jerusalem, the first of the apostles to be martyred. John would write much of the books of the New Testament and would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And they went from these cowardly, selfish disciples, you know, very much like us, consumed with ourselves, if we're honest, with our own sin. They go from that to the ones that would example Christ-like leadership because each one of them experienced firsthand the love of Christ. The book that we're using as a guide for our biblically healthy post-COVID church, Summer Sermon Series, it's a mouthful, is a book by Mark Dever called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And uh, in it, he lists different aspects of biblical church leadership, and one of them he calls the Christ-likeness of church leadership. The Christ-likeness of church leadership. And he starts to break down what did Christ's leadership look like and how can we follow his example. And he comes up with four simple taglines of Christ's leadership. Number one, he, he says Christ was the boss. He was in charge. He made commands. And just look at Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He exercises authority and he wants his followers to do the same. Devil reminds us that although authority can be abused, that does not mean authority itself is bad. Rather, we can help recover a godly aspect of authority by exercising it carefully. So that's number one. Number two, Christ was out front, he says. Just as he washed the disciples' feet, being out front means taking the initiative and setting the example for everyone else. And we saw that at the, at the beginning there with the commanding officer in the town of Carenton. We see it here in, in Mark 10 and John 13. We see others in the Bible follow this aspect of church leadership as well. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And that's the ultimate description of Christ-like leadership. Number three, he says Christ supplies. He doesn't just set the example. He then prepares his disciples so they are ready to go out and follow his example. Christ-like leaders equip, supply, and prepare their people. And number four, Christ serves. As we just saw in John 13 and in Philippians 2 as well, we see that Jesus took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the Christ-likeness of leadership, exercising authority how God intended. And look at David's last words in 2 Samuel 23. We're reading 2 Samuel as a church this month. It's part of our monthly book of the Bible. Verses 3 to 4 say, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In other words, it's a breath of fresh air. This is how God intended, ruling justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. When one leads like this, people are excited to follow. Calvary biblically church, biblical church leadership means 
exercising authority how God intended. I've talked so far about much of the theological sort of undergirding of biblical church leadership, and we're to lead differently than the world, and we're to exercise authority how God intended. But the Bible lays out very specific roles as well for church leadership. Every single one of us here has parts to play, right? It isn't only for the elders or other ministry leaders, but biblical church leadership means every church member plays a role. Every church member plays a role. And that's my, that's my third point, and I'm going to break it down sort of into two subsections here. Dever writes in his book that church leadership has biblical qualifications for elders and deacons, but it also has a congregational context. It's sort of difficult to talk about biblical leadership and not discuss elders and deacons, at least briefly. Steve Dobb preached about church membership two Sundays ago, and if you're a member of this church as people who have encountered Christ personally, then we have a responsibility. Not all of us have the same responsibility, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. But what is the congregation's role in church leadership? Well, first off, the congregation has a responsibility to, as mentioned before, follow the example of Christ by leading differently than the world and to exercise authority how God intended. Let's take a look at Mar- Matthew rather, 18, 15 to 17, and I'll just read it out. This talks about the authority that the church as a whole has. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So here we see that the church as a whole exercises authority. It practices church discipline. Its members are meant to hold each other accountable in loving, gracious, and a truthful way. We point each other back to Christ. We see a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul is exhorting the church to practice church discipline, and he appeals to their authority. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So it's not just a couple ministry leaders or the elders and deacons. It's actually the church as a whole here that Paul writes to. So every single one of us who are members of this church have a duty a role to play in decision-making. All right, a great practical example of this could be our, our church member business meetings. All right, we have one coming up on July 20th. I think it's important that we show up and participate, vote on decisions regarding our church, because as we've just seen Jesus commanded in Matthew and Paul in 1 Corinthians, we have a God-ordained duty to fulfill as members of the body. So how can we do that by applying this passage and follow Christ's example of leadership. Right, lead differently than the world. Exercise authority how God intended. The reason why James and John and all the other disciples had such a radical shift from selflessness to serving is because Jesus changed their lives. And the only way we here together will follow Christ's example of leadership if he has truly changed ours as well. 
So this is a call for all of us here to love each other as a family and be united. Only then can we function as the body that Christ calls us to be. And perhaps for some of you, this means to get more involved, to find a ministry that you can give yourselves of and serve in. For others, maybe you want to get to know more of the church family relationally. Perhaps for others, it means to start tithing. Right? As I think about all this stuff, I think of that famous book, The Hobbit, by J.R.R. Tolkien, where Gandalf, who's the wizard, and Bilbo, the hobbit, and they're on their journey. And Bilbo, who is getting tired, says to Gandalf, I just need to sit quietly for a moment. And Gandalf responds, you've been sitting quietly for far too long. And we should all ask ourselves, right? Have we been sitting quietly for far too long? Just looking inward, like the disciples, you know, afraid on the road to Jerusalem, or vying for positions in praise. I mean, how, how are we, how am I like them? Am I just here to consume? Do I only show up when I'm scheduled to play music or to serve in another ministry? Because Christ has saved us and brought us together, every single one of us has a role to play in our church. We all function as different members of the body. So that's the congregational context of biblical church leadership. That's the first sub-point. The second is the role of elders and deacons. And just to touch on that briefly, these are two biblically commanded, God-ordained positions of authority within the local church. And here's just a couple of passages that mention them. 1 Timothy 3, deacons likewise must be dignified. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Titus 1.5, that is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed to you. The New Testament goes out of its way to tell us in many other passages other than that, about elders and deacons and how they are meant to follow Christ's example of leadership. They're not the same, though. P.J. Smythe says that elders are servant leaders and deacons are leading servants. And by that, he means that the elders are the spiritual leaders in the church, but deacons are often the first ones looking after more practical needs of the church. Many people point to Acts 6 as the first instance of deacons in the local church. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So seven are chosen to help out with practical needs of some of the widows in the early church. The apostles choose them because they know that their duty is to preach the word of God. That was the apostles' primary calling, and they couldn't simply drop it in order to distribute food. And that is why they appointed seven to do it. But the preaching of the word is so important that it must not be neglected. However, not everyone is called to be an elder or a deacon. There are different qualifications, and Paul lays them out for us in 1 Timothy 3. 
He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Calvary, we don't yet have an official diaconate, hopefully soon though, but many of you here who serve as ministry leaders function in many of the same ways as a deacon or deaconess would, from hospitality to children's church, from tech to ushering many of the things needed to run our ministry. Deacons have qualifications and roles laid out for them in Scripture. And Paul also gives another set of qualifications which are very similar for elders. He says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer, overseer is just another word for elder, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Those are some of the qualifications of an elder, and they also have a duty to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So the elders have a special God-ordained calling to minister to the spiritual needs of their people. Right? There's a reason they're often referred to as under-shepherds because they are called to protect their sheep, the people of their local church under their care. Right? And our elders here do that. There's a reason they meet together. Every Thursday morning, while most of us are still asleep, to discuss all things Calvary, see what needs need to be met, pray for us by name. Because God has called them, and we the church have affirmed that calling to follow Christ's example of leadership as they care for us. So as I clue up, listen to Peter's exhortation to leaders when he exhorts fellow elders in 1 Peter 5. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's just like the same principles that we hear Jesus talk about in Mark 10. Notice how Peter identifies himself here as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. His foundation 
for leadership is that he partakes in Christ. He's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He has encountered Jesus as his Savior. When once he was looking at himself saying, Lord, you shall never wash my feet, and later denying him, now he is looking to Jesus as his model. So let's remind ourselves that biblical church leaders follow Christ's example of leadership. Jesus commands us not to be like the world in Mark 10, not being selfish, not making demands, not seeking out our own glory, although it is so easy for me to do that, but seeking rather to glorify God. Biblical church leadership means leading differently than the world. As Jesus calls us out of the selfish, prideful way, he calls us into humble servant leadership where we lead others by serving them. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came not to be served. So how much more should we then serve? Remember, biblical leadership means exercising authority how God intended. And finally, when we understand these things, we know that we have a role to play. It may not be the same as somebody else's, Every church member has a job. Whether or not God has called you to be an elder or deacon, we each make up a different part of the body. And we must exercise the area that we've been given responsibility over for God's glory alone. We can only follow Christ's example of leadership when we ourselves have met Christ. Have you met Christ? the one who flips the ideals of the world on his head, who leads by serving, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Look to Jesus. May we take these things and seek to practice them, putting away our own ambition and glory and desire to give praise and honor and glory to God alone. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you now in this place and we thank you for how good you are. Lord, forgive us for so many of the ways that we've sought our own glory. Forgive me for many of the ways, God, that I've sought my own honor and praise. Often in the ways that you've told us to glorify yourself. In the ways that we've put ourselves above you. I pray, Father, for forgive us for that and remind us, God, and point us to you and show us how much greater and better you are. Remind us, God, that we can only be examples and follow Christ-like leadership when we, too, have met you and encountered you. So I pray, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would remind us, God, of what you've commanded. You'd remind us, God, of the example that you gave ultimately on the cross. And we would be so captivated with you and your glory that we would not seek out our own. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.